Every Arizona homeowner's best friend for 30 years. And it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the House. Well, I'm riding along, singing the same old cowboy song. Well, good morning, Arizona homeowners. You're tuned in to another edition of Rosie on the House. It's your weekend wake-up call. It's your 30-year Saturday morning tradition right here with us in my house, Rosie on the House. We're here every single Saturday morning, and somehow today we're going to do like we always do. We're going to pack 10 hours of information into a mere four-hour broadcast here till 11 o'clock this morning. As you all know, you regular listeners of this show, the 7 o'clock hour is my hour. It's my family's hour. It's me and Jennifer's hour. We get to talk about anything and everything we want to talk about, Arizona people, places, and events. And today, in our month of featuring the Grand Canyon, we could not talk all month long about the Grand Canyon without talking about Arizona water. And who else would I invite in but our repeat guest, Mrs. Rita McGuire, former director of the Arizona Department of Water Resources, now in private practice at McGuire Pearson Storage. That's right, Rosie. Miss Rita, thanks a bunch for coming back in. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit, how, do, how does a nice person like you get involved in a dirty world of law concerning water rights? Because that's a... That's a that's a knockdown, drag out arena in there. It fight, is the fight old with California, Nevada. They all want our water. It's all true. <laughs> There's not, never enough water to go around. There's been fights for over a hundred years over the water supplies in Arizona and around the Southwest. And I just happened to luck into it. Really, I was appointed director of the Department of Water Resources back in 1993 by Governor Symington. Okay. The, the the good old days. Yeah, 1993. All right. So you get into this water management kind of, at, at, at that point, it's almost an environmental issue. I mean, there's there's a lot going on there. I mean, it, it, wasn't it the 80s that the environmentalists and the Yavapai McDowell Mountain uh, Nation stopped the dam? Exactly. I'm or kinda, the dam. I'm, I'm kind of glad they stopped that dam. You know, you and me both, frankly. Yeah. Right. Where were they going to put it? Right at the confluence of the salt and the verde. That's right. Exactly right. And it was going to provide additional storage on the river system. But we've now learned to store water underground and the aquifers directly below our feet. So in many respects, we've got a better reservoir system because it's not subject to evaporation. Well, you know, last time we had you on, we were talking about it was it was a wet year. And, and we were talking about we, we actually, as I remember, we had you on before the wet, wet year. And we were talking about there were the possibilities of the water management agencies, whoever they are, deciding we were going to go to tier one rationing of right. water out of Lake Mead. Then we have the incredible wet event of the last winter where we're releasing millions of gallons uh, millions of gallons of cubic feet down the Salt River through Tempe out to Buckeye Arlington and I guess all the way to the Gulf of California <laughs> That's right. It was a very wet year last year. We had lots of water, but unfortunately, we started that year, as, as you correctly pointed out, in a shortage position. So with respect to Lake Mead and Lake Powell, we raised the reservoir limits a bit, but it, we're already back down into a potential shortage situation this year. And all that's driven by an elevation of the Lake Mead 
reservoir, right? Right. When Lake Mead gets to what they call elevation 1075, 1,075 feet above sea level, that's when the Secretary of the Interior, who manages the system in the lower basin, which is California, Arizona, and Nevada, uh, must declare a shortage. And because of deals that were negotiated uh, back in 1968 in Congress, Arizona agreed that the water delivered through the Central Arizona Project was the first water to be cut back when there's a drought declared. And in that water rights settlement of 1968, that's when they were talking, uh, that Orem Dam was a part of that. That's exactly right. It was the- We, we were gonna get that additional storage. Exactly. It was part of the congressional funding to build the entire CAP infrastructure, which included Orem Dam, among others. It basically meant putting all of the Fort McDowell reservation the great majority of the Fort McDowell Reservation, underwater. That's true. It would have inundated their lands, and that was a big concern, and that's why ultimately it never was built. The dam was never built. So, But it is heartbreaking, in like last year, to go sit at Rio Salada, you know, benches, and just watching all that water make its way all the way down to the Gulf of California. I know, and we're constantly looking at ways to capture that water, but there's lots of people who have claims to the supply, so you always have to think about whether your right trumps somebody else's right, and so it's a little tricky these days. Would you anticipate there's ever any chance in Arizona another dam could get built? No, I really don't. <laughs> Forever? I cannot see it with all. All eternity? <laughs> you know, you don't want to say never, but it's darn close. Really? Yeah. There's too many environmental restrictions. There's too many people. Uh, there's just too much development. Uh, the idea that you would be able to build a dam, and what we have typically done in the past, as you know, with Glen Canyon Dam and, and the Hoover Dam, is fill up canyons. And that caused the environmental community even back in the 60s and so on before that. So today, in today's climate, very unlikely you would be successful in being able to build a dam. Well, I brought you this book, which several of my friends in the legal world and the world of adventure say it's one of the best books they ever read, The Emerald Mild. It's a story about a record-setting pace of three river guides who go from Lee's Ferry to Lake Mead in record time in a dory, a rowing dory. Mm -hmm. And they do that in the floods of 1983 when they were actually attaching two-by-fours and plywood to the top of Glen Canyon Dam to keep it from overspilling. And the, the overflow chutes that they have shot and drilled through the rock of that area and lined with concrete were actually spitting out, turned up. They had the, they had the relief valves turned on full speed, wide open, and it was spitting out chunks of concrete the skies of school buses. And they were so worried that it was eroding the integrity of the entire dam. It, they were sitting on pins and needles to whether or not the entire dam would fail. Yeah. You know, no one can really understand the power of water until you sit above uh, a, a waterfall or a dam release and the vibration from it, the earth is shaking, the air is pushing everything out of its way. It, it's a phenomenal force to be dealt with. Well, the great thing about that book is it will read for the first over half of the book. It's about the water rights negotiation of how the Glen Canyon Dam ever mm -hmm. got built. And it was a big part of Mo Udall uh, and a, a lot of environmentalists and the Sierra Club all deciding at the time that was the right place for that dam.
That's exactly right, uh, and it is a, a tremendous story, and I can hardly wait to read it. It's a, I, you're you're going to enjoy it. You really are. Okay, so we're talking about this wet, wet event that we had last year. All kinds of excess water. The reservoirs filling back up, reaching above 17. 1075. 10, critical level. Okay. Right. We allow Powell and me to kind of top off. Or, well, they didn't top off. They're far from topping off. But they developed a, bu- a buffer, a little buffer for that number. And everybody goes into relax mode. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows you need a good crisis to get people to act. And so the minute that the heavens started to open and we started to see snowfall and precipitation, people immediately started to talk about the drought being over. The problem is drought is a period of time. It's not a a single moment. It's not a a single snapshot. And so we may never have gotten out of the larger drought in the southwest, but you have wet years. You have blips relief, And that's what we had last year, and many think we're back into a drought cycle again. So we finish 2016, open 2017, very wet environment, feeling real good about things. All the deserts all around this area are as green as the hills of, of Scotland. They're absolutely gorgeous. The wild uh, flower uh, bloom was spectacular, and we don't have another rain event until August 20. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Uh, you've done your homework, but I believe it. And then, and then we d- we had virtually no monsoon, and then we don't have another rain, uh, another significant rain event, until December. Right. Right. And so now we're right back where we were two years ago. We really are. Uh, the reservoir levels are dropping. Uh, the Bureau of Reclamation, who manages the entire system, uh, is now projecting that there is a chance of a shortage declaration. It's still in the single digits. but The chance is the single chance, digit? Okay. Yeah, but it went from no chance for next year to now some small percentage. And every time you move the needle off at zero, that means there is some possibility of a shortage. And as the drought continues, that percentage increases. Now, who actually makes that call? Do, do they have someone there that says, okay, that level's been hit, it goes? Or do they say it's going to be hit by our best calculations in six months, let's start it now? Uh, I guess do they the, do any anticipation? They do, absolutely. The Bureau makes the declaration of the next year's conditions in the reservoir in August of the prior year. So they begin to set the tone for what orders will be met in October. So the orders for the water for January of the following year are made in October, and they follow the Bureau's declaration of whether it's a good, normal condition or a shortage condition in August. Now, see, all y'all really care about is when the sprinkler valve goes on, do you get the water you need to irrigate your lawn and your garden and your oleanders and your trees and brush your teeth and shave and shower and bathe and fill the swimming pool? But there is a ton of history and a ton of people at work constantly to ensure every single time you touch that tap, There's something coming out the other end. It's an incredible work. We're here with Mrs. Rita McGuire, the former director of Arizona Department of Water Resources, now in private practice. I imagine private practice revolving around water rights and laws, I would imagine. That's correct. We'll be back with more right after this at Rosie on the House. Y'all stay tuned. I want to know who makes that call, and I also want to know how long does it take water to get from Mead To the bottom of the pipe. To the bottom of the pipe. All right. All that when we get back. Y'all hang on. 
All day I face the barren waste without the taste of water. Welcome back, Arizona homeowners. We're talking water. We're talking water with Mrs. Rita McGuire. Rita, what is the quote I'm trying to remember about water in the West? Whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. Boy, and that's been proven true year after year after year after year. I'm just now finishing uh, Mark Wilmer's biography, mm-hmm. Part, Parting the Water? or Divide, Divided Waters. Divided Waters uh, by Mr. August. Correct. Jack August. And uh, we've had Jack on the show before, um, and he wrote his biography, a, a incredible biography, but just about the neg- – we were about ready to lose that battle before Wilmer stepped up and won it for us. It's really true. It's one of the great stories of Arizona history. We literally had lost the initial ruling, so Arizona was on the defensive with California arguing that they were entitled to more water uh, to, in the Colorado River system. Mark Wilmer came in at the 11th hour and completely changed the strategy for um, our defense, our case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, and it's a concept known as equitable apportionment. And what's important about that is it used to be the first guy that tapped the water system had the senior rights, but when Mark Williams Wilmer came forward, he made the argument that the water should be equitably divided, divided waters, among the three lower basin states, and Arizona was able to get a significant portion of that. Uh, and it was a huge victory, and we're all the beneficiaries today. And then it, you have John Rhodes and, and who else involved in getting the CAP done. And then that is our lifeblood vein to the Colorado River. But it's the first thing we have to give up. That's exactly right. Just a little math, if the listeners would bear with me. We're entitled to 2.8 million acre feet of water every year out of the Colorado River system. California, by comparison, is entitled to 4.4 million acre feet. The water that gets shorted in Arizona is the water that goes through the CAP system, which carries one and a half million acre feet. So it's not all of Arizona's entitlement, but it's the water that comes into the Phoenix metropolitan area and to Tucson. So it's a very important block of water. It's about half. Yeah. 1.5 or 2.8. Exactly. Well, that's a lot. It is a lot, and not all of it goes away. It's in small percentages. So you were talking about, are we paying attention and trying to plan ahead? And uh, when there's a shortage declared on the system and the CAP water is cut back, the first entities that get cut back are the farmers. So it's not the municipalities, but it's farmers. And so they're very much aware of that, and they have pumps to turn on for groundwater if necessary. But uh, that is very different than California, where the farmers actually have the senior water rights. Now, we're not currently utilizing every drop we take out of the Colorado River in the CAP. I mean, it gets to the end of the ditch, and there's still water in that ditch. Well, what we do is we store the water underground that's not going to direct use. So we're putting to use most of our 2.8 million acre foot entitlement. Okay, so we get all of that. So even if a farmer in Casa Grande lets it go by, mm-hmm. he could have future access to that 
water if he needs See if we could just get it to flow uphill. Exactly. Wouldn't that make a difference? So what happens, Rosie, is water gets released out of Lake Mead, and it comes down the Colorado River, and it heads south. And entities take water off the river as it goes by them. But it takes about two weeks from the start of Lake Mead, where it's discharged, all the way down to the very end of the system, which is actually the in Colorado Mexico. The Colorado River system, not the yes. CAP. Okay, so... Yep. To get down the Colorado River from me, that's a two-week inner tube float. Exactly. Okay. And the diversions into the CAP system happen out of Lake Havasu. So that's yes. where the diversion point is to bring this water into central Arizona. Okay. So how do they determine how big the gate valve needs to be open up there at me? Well, you have to put your orders in back in that October of the prior year. So you're calling up the bureau. They're literally polling every water, major water consumer and saying, what's your allocation for next year? Absolutely. What if it's a wet year? If it's a wet year, then everything changes, and that's when you look to your storage places. So in recent years, we just build what's called drop two storage, which is in the very southern tip of the Colorado River system just before you cross the border into Mexico, and it's built to capture the water that isn't used by the upstream users because it rained, and they don't need their Colorado River supply for this week. So, or there's some other change. They, you know, they've got a technical problem, whatever, and they can't take the delivery of the water. Rather than have it go into Mexico, it's captured in the United States. It's part of the U.S. entitlement in what's called drop to storage, which can capture up to 70,000 acre feet of water, which is a big pool of water. So Gary D., our engineer, has a little okra and and uh, garlic plot down in Yuma, and he puts in his little requis requisition for water uh, a, a, a year ahead yes. of time. Okay, the year ends up being wetter than anticipated. He doesn't want the water. Someone automatically knows to divert his water to this drop two storage facility in California. Well, drop two storage is really more of an emergency basis. Uh, on a more annual basis, if Gary decides he doesn't want to irrigate his entire farm for the year, we have in the CAP system a concept known as the excess pool. And then that water is available on a year-to-year -year basis because it's not being used by somebody who has it under contract in perpetuity. Ooh, okay, I know all y'all care about at home is that when you turn the tap on, you can brush your teeth, you can shave, you can shower, you can bathe the dog, the kids, fill up your swimming pool, and irrigate your garden and your landscaping. But it's so much more than that. And we're here with Rita McGuire talking about it. I so appreciate her willingness to come in and visit about it. I've got so much more I want to talk about, but I can't stop the clock. we got a break for Bottom of the Hour News and catch up. We'll be back with Rita right after this. with Rosie on the house covering one of my favorite topics water particularly water in the west you know I go back home to south Louisiana it ain't so important it's not so critical it's, it's a little muddier back then it's a little rustier back then but uh, the water out here in the west is again Miss Rita it's whiskeys for drinking and waters for fighting whiskeys for drinking waters for fighting and that has proven so true through the many civilizations that have occupied the entire western area forever so we're talking a little bit about uh, water storage and and 
when when these farmers got the CAP canal, they were given a 1.5 million allocation, and they were able to use as much or as little of it as it was. If I remember in my vague little memory, it was a little bit more expensive than they were anticipated. A lot of them didn't take as much as was quite anticipated. But we started recharging land aquifers for that. Right. Those are just big underground bathtubs? In a sense, yes. Uh, it is literally a bathtub, if you visualize it, filled with sand and gravel. Uh, and, of course, there's clay, there's caliche. We've all run into those things when we've dug our swimming pools. But there's enough space in these underground aquifers to fill with surface water. Why can we do that? Well, there used to be groundwater there. I mean, these used to be giant seabeds, right? So groundwater seeps in over the millennia, but the farmers and, and municipalities, but primarily farmers for decades, pumped the water because there was no CAP system. They right. didn't have access to much surface water. Couldn't so, depend on the rain. Exactly. That came and went, but you would build pumps, and these pumps would p pump the water out, and that left space in the underground aquifer. So we come along in the 90s, and we say, we're not using all of our Colorado River water. Let's divert it and create recharge basins or direct injection wells and fill those aquifers back up. And we've done that to the tune of over 4 million acre feet since the mid-1990s. So water tables critical. As a matter of fact, what were you saying during the break that really caught me by complete surprise? Buckeye is waterlogged? It's do they know that? They do know that. <laughs> you, and certainly, you, wouldn't know it, you wouldn't know it by driving through it. <laughs> it is true because in Maricopa County roughly is a basin. Uh, and so they're not the political limits don't define the boundaries, but they happen to be fairly similar. So if you think about the far northeast corner of Maricopa County, and then it, the water itself heads south and west and ends up coming out, if you will, the bathtub uh, in the Buckeye area, Buckeye, Goodyear, Avondale, so the very southwestern corner of Maricopa County. And the water can drain into the Gila River. Uh, so... Uh, but primarily what it does is it backs up first, uh, and it inundated the, the agricultural lands in Buckeye and Goodyear and so on, and you had root zone inundation, and the farmers couldn't grow their crops because the quality of the water is pretty salty. It's not a very good quality of water. So it's technically waterlogged, which means... You can use that water without having to uh, comply with certain conservation requirements that we put into effect back in the 1980s. So in my mind and in, in my eye, my mind's eye, I could drive through Buckeye seeing farmers pumping water out of the ground into a ditch to make it go away. That's exactly <laughs> what happens. <laughs> It's a true story. That's absolutely incredible. Yes, and you know, and it's of concern to everyone because we're all, you know, wanting to be very efficient about the use of our water and we don't want it to be wasted. But the problem is the water is such poor quality that it's very, very expensive to treat it for municipal use. Yeah, I did not mean that as a slight to all of our farming friends. I, there's hardly any industry that's as efficient with water as our our, our Arizona farmers in particular. But it's just incredible that they could be in that kind of a situation. Mm. You were telling me that uh, water rights are, are, have got the legislature pretty busy this session? It's true. This is a big water year. Uh, I think there are, are probably a half a dozen bills introduced in both the Senate and the House. The fight's never over? No. Well... <laughs> As the water gets more expensive, as it gets scarcer, of course, you know, the temperature in terms of dealing with these issues goes up. So we've got 
the budget and we've got water and that's consuming our legislature pretty much this whole season? I think that's right. Uh, Like I said, uh, there have been a number of bills introduced dealing with management of the Colorado River system, dealing with the management of groundwater in Pinal County, dealing with uh, issues really around the state generally. So it's the whole panoply of water issues this year. Now, I've heard from someone in Tucson that that because of the CAP, the water table in the greater Pima County area is that the water table is actually rising, and overall, at 7 million people in the state of Arizona, we're using about the same amount of water as we were in 1960 with a million and a half. That's all true. We are That's much, incredible. much more efficient. I know. That is, that, is a, that is a huge declaration to our efficiency. It absolutely is. Even during my tenure as the director, when I started, we would say it takes – uh, one acre foot to supply a family of five for a year. Now we say uh, two families or three families of five can be sustained on one acre foot of water, which is basically a football field filled one foot deep with water. That's an acre foot of water. So that's how much more efficient we've gotten o- over a very short period of time. That's awesome. All right. I remember growing up in Scottsdale, we had our, our mayor, Herb Drinkwater, and uh, Herb struck a deal. Where, where we were talking about um, Havasu and Parker and where the gate is, the head gate for the CAP Canal, that he bought a ranch up there called Planet Ranch, right above Lake Alamo, right along the river, the Bill Williams River and all. And he bought the ranch under the theory that, hey, I'm going to take all that ranch's water, dump it into the CAP, and the city of Scottsdale can tap into that quantity when it gets down to us. How did that work out? Not so well. Uh, it, it was fraught with environmental challenges. There's third-party impacts. There's always this concern of, of the metropolitan areas going into rural parts of the state, not just here in Arizona, but in California and elsewhere, and basically sucking those rural communities dry with the, the, the need for water in these growing metropolitan areas. Planet Ranch is one example. The city of Phoenix did something similar. Mesa did something similar. In all cases, I think they've all sold those (laughs) ranches or farms uh, because it simply was not environmentally feasible because of the impacts. It was too expensive, and or they found other options that were less expensive. But that theory, if if I if I have my story right, that theory still in play. Aren't we trying to? Don't we have Kingman kind of upset with us right now? We do, and I believe there's even legislation this year to that effect. Uh, There is some uh, effort uh, by the Central Arizona Water Conservation District to acquire water, and they're the operator of the CAP system, to acquire land and water rights in Mojave County and move that water down through the Colorado River and then ultimately into the CAP system into central Arizona. And of course, the folks in Mojave County are very concerned that that's a water supply they may need in the future. So there are very active, lively public debates going on about this issue. You know, when I travel the country and I tell people I'm from Arizona, the same questions always come up. How can you live someplace that gets so hot in the summer that when you take a hike, everything wants to stick you or bite you, the cactus, the scorpions, the cactus, and that has so little water? And, then I, and, and boy, that's, that's when I jump on my soapbox. Because Arizona probably is in better shape in, in its forefathers' thought about water, the supply of water. We're in 
infinitely better shape than any of our surrounding neighbors, for sure. I'll bet you we're in better shape than a lot of the Midwest and West Virginia, I bet. Well, in many respects, that's true. I was talking with someone today about what's going on in Cape Town, South Africa. They're on the verge of having not enough water by April. Well, part of that is they've had water available to them on such a routine basis that they sort of took it for granted. And you even see that in the East Coast where communities don't build big storage reservoirs because the water is going to come out of the sky on a routine basis. We, on the other hand, know that water is a blessing and we can go for long periods without it. So we've built all these different kinds of storage facilities, above ground, underground, all sorts of arrangements to deal with drought conditions between the farmers and the cities. So in many, many respects, we're much better prepared. And then, and then we, residents, have to count on you to protect what we've got because everybody wants it. That's right. I got a full employment <laughs> contract with water, but it's a great area to be in. And, and you get the culture and the history of a community all wrapped up with the practical day-to-day issues concerning water. What do you see the water issues being the next 50 years? Well, one issue that we really haven't talked about is in the past, it was the farmers and the municipalities that had the water rights. Now a big water right holder are the tribes, the Native American tribes. So the Fort McDowell Reservation, they have water rights, as do the Gila River Indian Community, the Akshin, and so on and so forth. They are beginning to lease those water supplies to communities, non-Indian communities, uh, in order to supplement their water budgets. So the question will be, how does water move across what are traditional jurisdictional boundaries? Can it move? And and legally, will it be acceptable to the general population? Will water move out of Mojave County and come into central Arizona? Will some of Arizona's water move to California and vice versa? You know, literally, how fluid will it be? Well, I got a small education in how complicated it is because Jennifer and I have a piece of property at the very headwaters of the San Francisco River in the White Mountains. Mm-hmm. And not only do we have the river flowing across the pasture, but we also have a bubbling artesian well that just bubbles up in the middle of the pasture, waters and irrigates a beautiful area that the horses just love. And I thought, you know what? That spring, that that needs to be dammed up, and I need to do like about a two-acre pond that the grandchildren can start fishing on. So I get a hold of Brown and Brown <laughs> in Springerville, and I make an appointment, and I and he's very patient with me. He says, "Yeah, that he says that that spring's been kind of the eye of a lot of people in this community for a long, long time." Uh, but you'll have to talk to M- Mr. Judd's daughter uh, to get verification that he gets his water rights. He says, and then the next person you have to talk to is the Auction Indian tribe on the Gila River, because that water belongs to them. Mm-hmm. Yes, there, there's a concept known as the string theory. It's true in water. You know, you pull it at one point, and it affects something way down at the end. And you and you can't see it at the time, but everybody's water rights are related. Well, at that point, the Rosie and Jennifer's grandchildren's fishing pond became Luna Lake. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> we, we weren't going to go through that fight to try and build a, a one- or two-acre little pond. Rita, I can't thank you enough for coming in and kind of sharing all of this. And, and, and again, I, I, want to, I, w- I want the Arizona homeowners to be assured of the fact they don't have to stay awake at night worrying about their water supply in Arizona. We're in good shape. We really are. We have done our homework for literally a century. So we are in much better shape than any of the states in the Southwest. We're looked to as a model for how we manage our water supplies. 
Rita McGuire of McGuire, Pierce, and Story Private Firm, former director of Arizona Department of Water Resources. What a wealth of information. Can't thank you enough. This has absolutely been spectacular. No, my pleasure. Like I say, I know all y'all care about is the faucet. When you turn it on, hot or cold, you want it delivered. Because of the foresight of our legislatures very early on that saw a dam at the confluence of the Tonto Creek and the, and the Salt River would make a great place for the Roosevelt Lake. And we could come right down that chain. And we did fill a lot of very beautiful canyons. Can't deny it. But that provided us with the security of living here in Arizona for a long, long time. And featuring in our staycation segment of today's show, what else could we do but one of the seven wonders of the world, located right here in the great state of Arizona, it's our own Grand Canyon. Do you know how many people live in Arizona, were raised in Arizona, and have never been to the Grand Canyon? They should be expelled expelled. to California. (laughs) No, no, we should encourage them to go. Yeah, they They're really should. Out. Oh, so we've got the staycation package travelers, the winners traveling to the Grand Canyon this particular month. What kind of package and bundle have you been able to put together for them? Well, you know, we love the stories of the Grand Canyon, and we had Roger Naylor on last year talking about his new book about the Kolb brothers. So in the staycation package, they will get a signed copy of Roger Naylor's The the Amazing Cold Brothers of the Grand Canyon. It would be really fun to read that while you're sitting by the, the edge of the Grand Door, wouldn't it? Oh, maybe right there next to the Kolb studio. Yeah, you know, there you just go. Just leaning up against the little rim wall that's there alongside the rim trail there. It would be a perfect place to soak it all in, maybe even catch a flight of an overhead condor. That's right. <laughs> oh, man. It's all right there. Well, the Cole brothers, what an interesting story they have compiled, building their empire right there on the very ledge, on the very precipice, the very rim of the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Cole Studios, is one of the more impressive buildings I've seen. And then you look at some of the photographs they've taken and the film documentary they made of floating down the Grand Canyon. Pretty incredible story. Well, of course, they'll get to go. This trip starts with going to Sanderson Ford and picking out their choice, the winner's choice of a vehicle off their demo lot. And then they take that little vehicle and they can drive up the highway. They'll have in their car, they'll have magazines from Arizona Highways and guidebooks. They can maybe stop and even do a few hikes along the way. Absolutely. Uh, the Arizona, the new Arizona Highways uh, guidebook is hot off the press. It's brand new. They're featuring it by segments and by activities. So, they're a great set of books that we'll have included in there. Now, once they get up to the Grand Canyon Village, where are we going to put them up? They're going to stay at the newly remodeled Yavapai Lodge. Here's their tagline. Yavapai Lodge, where natural beauty meets the magic of convenience. So the, it's newly remodeled. It's right inside the park itself. Um, it has an east wing and a west wing. On the east wing, you have two stories, newly remodeled rooms. They are air-conditioned, and it's not pet-friendly. So if you want to bring your little furry babies, you have to stay on the west wing. And it's mid-century modern, newly remodeled as well, pet-friendly, and you even get a little pet package if you bring your pet. 
doggy bags and little bowls to feed and water. They'll even take a little travel kennel to the room, right? Yeah. Yeah. So isn't that cool? I think most people travel with their dogs don't put them in a kennel in the room. (laughs) Most people that are that close to their pets, the pet's in the bed with them. With the folks. Well, that's probably true. <laughs> Shh, don't tell anybody. So anyway, the Yavapai Lodge, if you go to their website, um, they have a wonderful page showing the lodge itself, and it gives you a place to plan your adventure. And you can go by, um, you can look at what's going on up in the area. It gives you a two-day things to think about. If you're there for two days, here's some things to do. If you're here for three days, here's some things to do. Bright Angel Trail, whitewater rafting, hiking, just whatever you want to do up there. If you're traveling to the Grand Canyon, no, it's probably it's one of the I think it's the number one tourist destination spot in the state of Arizona, and you have to plan accordingly. You're not just going to show up and get a seat on a burrow ride down to the bottom of Phantom Ranch. This that's, is true. That's something that takes a little planning and a little foresight and uh, some reservations. Well, even some of the trails like um, have a supai. Don't you have to have a permit to get down there? I tried to get one last year, and we couldn't get one. Those are, you, you, those are hard to we get. We tried on the day it opened. It yeah. was already, the phones were so busy, you couldn't get through. So you have to really want it and work at it if you want to be able to do some of those. But to just walk around El Tavar and look around, and sit on the edge of the canyon and watch the beautiful views, you can't beat it. No, you really can't. So sunsets, sunrise, uh, maybe a, maybe in April, a little cloud inversion that always makes a very dramatic sight at the Grand Canyon. I hope whoever wins and gets up there does take the time just to travel down one of the trails just a little bit. Uh, Yavapai, uh, uh, I'm sorry, South Kaibab is a nice trail. It uh, It's a little bit steep, but it gets you out to uh, Juniper Point. And, and get you there fairly quickly. It's a commanding view of the Grand Canyon. You can do the same on Bright Angel and get down to Indian Gardens. It's a little bit farther of a hike, uh, but it gets you closer to the river, and it does get you to a very beautiful location. You can do and both those without a permit? You, day hikes just there and back, mm-hmm. you can. I, I, I'm almost positive. I'm um, just Check. tell them Rosie said it was okay. <laughs> See what that gets you. Yeah, I'll come up. I'll come up to Grand Canyon Village and bail you out if that's the case. So we're packaging these, these staycations per destination specific every month. RosieOnTheHouse.com, the only place in the world for you to register for your Arizona staycation. Romy, what have you got coming up? Well, we've got a great panel today. It's an interesting story, and I'll talk a little bit more, but we have uh, three guests for our Outdoor Living Hour. A couple follow-up notes before we wrap this one up. Several calls that uh, people wanting to know the book you are giving our guests at the beginning. It's The Emerald Mile, Kevin Fedarko. It's about three guys that jumped in a rowboat and went down the Grand Canyon in a flood season of 1983 and did the whole Grand Canyon in a boat in like 24 hours. It's an incredible story. Uh, but if you want to experience it, uh, we're going to have the Arizona River Runners up soon. It's in a much more mild manner. Uh, great, great platform for any length of time. You can do a 24-day uh, trip down the Grand Canyon or as short as like a three-day or a half-day trip. But we'll have uh, the Arizona River Runners up to follow up talking about the Grand Canyon Water Outdoor Living Hour. Next, if you've got a question about your landscape, garden, or outdoors, get online now at one 767 4348 That's one 888 rosie for you